0: Again, for our class, uh, Faith in a World Without God, I wanted to give this little announcement at at the front. On May 10th, we're going to do a time for questions and answers, Uh, so if along the way some questions have come to mind, if you could just write those down, uh, feel free to send them to me ahead of time, that way you might get something more substantive than just off the cuff, Uh, but you know, some questions might come up this morning in particular, if you just take a note of those. Uh, Send them in or just ask them that that morning. We'll try to interact with uh, some of those. But our topic for this morning is, does science disprove Christianity? And and this will be part one. And let me just say up front uh, that of the five weeks for our class, uh, this week and next week will probably be the more difficult. uh, But it is getting at some of the things that are confronting us and that many of us are looking for help in responding to. It's just that sometimes the answers need to be more detailed and nuanced than the objections initially convey. Uh, But I'll do this and I'll start with a quote from Nacho Libre in case you were fortunate enough to see that majestic film. uh, When Jack Black's Character asks his new friend Escalado why he's not yet been baptized. Uh, His response is, I don't know why you always have to be judging me because I only believe in science. It's a uh, wonderful satire, the attitude of our culture today. uh, Because we love science. Scientific knowledge is something that we value and for good reason. You know, science has given us the iPhone. Uh, We've experienced the tangible ...benefits of science through technology and through modern medicine, and we're appreciative of that. But in our secular culture, there's also the general impression that science and religion are incompatible. That they are competing systems that are at war with one another. Sam Harris, one of the new atheists, writes, "...religion once offered answers to many questions that have now been ceded to the care of science." This process of scientific conquest and religious forfeiture has been relentless, one-directional, and utterly predictable. And so science and religion have been at war, uh, with all the while religion losing ground to scientific victories. And this presentation of religion and science as being in conflict goes back to the 19th century. And, and really to two secular writers in particular who provided their own revision of history. There was Andrew Dixon White's A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom and John William Draper's History of the Conflict Between Science and Religion. And as Mitch Stokes has put it, the ghosts of these two books still haunt our academic halls. And they start with the token story of Galileo. Right? You're probably familiar with it. It goes like this. In 1616... The Catholic Church condemned what they called Copernicanism, or the view that the earth rotates around the sun. Uh, Their position was that the Bible teaches that the sun moved around a stationary earth. After all, Joshua 10 says that God made the sun stand still when he performed that miracle. And then some years later, the Roman Inquisition found an Italian scientist named Galileo guilty of heresy for holding that the Earth actually moves around the Sun, and so they forced him to recant his views, and he spent the rest of his life under house arrest. And so it's presented as uh, Galileo, the scientist, suffering as a martyr at the hands of religious authorities who ignored the evidence. Right? So it's a it's a moving story, uh, but it's also largely a work of fiction. <laughs> Uh, Because Galileo himself never viewed this as a conflict between religion and science, but as a debate among Christians interpreting both science and scripture differently. And the Catholic Church's position wasn't simply a matter of how they read the Bible, but also the place that they gave to Aristotle's science which happened to locate the earth at the center of the universe. And so both sides agreed that they should follow observations in nature as well as the authority of Scripture. They just disagreed on the conclusions to be drawn. Uh, But the way that this story has been used since the 19th century is is to provide evidence of a warfare between religion with its blind dogmatism. And science with its observation and self correction. And we see this perspective continue today. Stephen Hawking writes There's a fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority, and science, which is based on observation and reason. Science will win because it works. And so religion and science are seen as two competing sources of knowledge, Uh, one that's driven by blind assumptions and the other driven by evidence. And then it's not surprising which of the two we're told we can do without, right? Uh, In fact, there's the perception that science has made religion and even philosophy altogether unnecessary. Science is able to explain all of reality without the need for God. It's largely put him out of a job. Atheists love to tell a story of the success of science, making religious beliefs obsolete. You know, we no longer need a Zeus who hurls lightning bolts or a God who holds planets in their place. If it hasn't already, eventually scientific information will replace the need for religious and philosophical truth altogether. It'll it will close in all the gaps in our understanding and, and leave behind no room for what they call a God of the gaps. Now, ironically, new atheists in particular uh, talk about science with almost religious devotion. Science is attributed omnipotent explanatory power. The scientific method is the best way to know something, and in fact... Uh, All knowledge should be considered scientific knowledge. As Burton Russell stated it, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. And so if it's not learned through science, it's just another fairy tale. Well, that perspective isn't really about science, uh, but about something called scientism which means that we can only know what can be scientifically proven. That's a popular statement, but if you take 2 seconds to think about it, it's obviously false. Clearly not all of our knowledge is scientific. Think about it. You know, there's many things that we know that science doesn't tell us. Scientific method doesn't tell us whether Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis was the 16th president of the United States. You can't use science to determine if Gollum happened to be the protagonist for the Lord of the Rings after all, or even whether the forced experiments that the Nazi scientists performed on Jews were morally acceptable. So these are historical truths, they're literary truths, and they are ethical truths. They're not scientific but they're no less true or important because of that. But the reality is that science itself rests on certain unproven assumptions. And so scientism, it just betrays a naive view of science, uh, one that's reflected in that Stephen Hawking quote, by the way. Uh, Hawking is a brilliant scientist, but he's a lousy philosopher of science. Uh, The project of science simply assumes that natural laws actually exist, that objective truth exists, and that we can know it, uh, that our senses are a reliable way to access information. You know, that when you're staring into the microscope, that you're actually seeing the way the world really is In fact, the entire scientific enterprise is based upon the idea that uh, research and experiments toward developing tested hypotheses is the best way to gain information about the natural world. But what scientific experiment could possibly tell you that? But the main problem is that scientism is self-refuting, After taking out all other fields of knowledge, it then must turn the gun on itself. We should only believe what can be scientifically proven. The position sounds reasonable enough until one realizes that if it's true, it's false. The the appropriate response is to clear your throat and request scientific proof for that statement itself. And if none can be given, uh, then we should follow the orders of scientism and dismiss Scientism itself. But this raises the question of what must the world be like in order for science to be able to work? If science rests on certain assumptions about the nature of the universe that we're investigating, what kind of worldview is necessary in order for those assumptions to be true? And this gets at what I've described in your notes as the theistic foundations for science. In other words, you need God in order for science to be possible. Take the uniformity of nature or the fact that the universe operates by consistent natural laws. If nature were not uniform and intelligible, then science would be impossible. This is because science makes use of what's called inductive reasoning. So you collect data. And you draw conclusions on the basis of past exper- experience, right? You, you do a scientific experiment and you consistently get this result again and again. And, and on that basis, you, you can make the reasonable prediction that if you'll do it again, you'll get the same result. That's how the scientific method works. But have you ever considered why is the world like that and not just total chaos Why doesn't gravity just decide to take a day off? Uh, Why not dissect a frog one day and discover popcorn on the inside? Uh, You see, nature doesn't have to be ordered in this way. It doesn't have to be intelligible. We're just so used to the world working like this that we don't tend to consider what reality must be like in order for this to be true. And why are there natural laws at all? Right, Eugene Wigner, he was a Nobel Prize winner in physics, said, It is not at all natural that laws of nature exist, much less that man is able to discover them. That's an interesting statement. Now, that statement came from a paper that Wigner wrote in 1960 titled, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. And, and here's just one perplexing example of nature's intelligibility if there's no creator, right? How many guys majored in a science in, in college? all right? Good good handful of us. Uh, probably had to take a bunch of math classes as well, right? Uh, it's because math is so important to how science operates. But have you ever thought why? What does the theoretical realm of math, Have to do with the real world? What does that have to do with nature? You know, how is it that a theoretical physicist like Peter Higgs can sit down at his desk and just work out math equations and on the basis of those math equations predict the existence of a particle and field that almost half a century later experimental physicists go out and discover? Now, we're not just talking about uh, using basic arithmetic in everyday life, which might seem unsurprising. You know, I have one apple, I have another apple. Guess what? I have two apples. Uh, but even that's more remarkable than we realize. But what about things like complex numbers? All right, so complex numbers, they are the combination of a real number. A real number is just something that can be located on the Number line, all the positive and, and negatives, everything in between, and an imaginary number. And the imaginary number is, is represented by I, which is the square root of negative one. All right, if you don't get that, I don't either. I had a liberal arts education. Uh, but, but complex numbers, they're just so counterintuitive to our everyday experience, and yet they're necessary in order to formulate the laws of quantum mechanics. But it's not at all obvious that math should so beautifully describe the natural world if nature is just the accidental byproduct of the Big Bang and if math is just the invention of the human brain. Right? It doesn't make sense unless the universe is a product of intelligence and math reflects the mind of the one who ordered nature according to his design. And that design is detectable in nature, which illustrates how science not only needs God in order to function, but also provides positive evidence for God. For example, the Bible teaches that the world was created out of nothing in the finite past. But you might be surprised to hear that for centuries, secular scientists maintained that the universe was eternal. Just it's always been here. It wasn't until uh, the 20th century and the rise of modern cosmology that scientists recognize that the universe had an absolute beginning in space and in time. And so the evidence for the beginning of the universe supports what Scripture has taught all along. But the beginning of the universe is also something that begs for explanation. And so this has been presented in in the form of what's called the cosmological argument. It's in, in your notes like this. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause, right? Things don't just pop into existence uncaused. If they did, you know what you wouldn't be able to do? Science, right? You assume there are causes for effects when you do science. Number two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. And by the nature of the case, that cause must be outside of the universe itself. It's what created the universe it must be outside the natural world in other words it must be supernatural it must be outside of time because it's what created space-time itself it must be extremely powerful and that cause also must be personal because only personal agents can do decide to create something that didn't previously exist it's not that we needed 20th century cosmology in order to believe in god But it is interesting how it provides evidential confirmation for God's work in creation. And this extends to the fine-tuning of the universe as well. Today it's just undisputed that the universe is fine-tuned for intelligent life. Atheist scientists don't question the fine-tuning, they just don't admit that it reflects design. But after a while, the improbabilities of this happening by chance just become incredible. And Eric Metaxas summarizes some of this in an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal of all places. I think it was one of their most popular articles uh, on their website ever. He writes, Today there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life, every single one of which must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. Without a massive planet like Jupiter nearby, whose gravity will draw away asteroids, a thousand times as many would hit Earth's surface. Ever wonder why do we have Jupiter? That just seems superfluous, right? Or apparently not. The odds against life in the universe are simply astonishing. Yet here we are, not only existing, but talking about existing. What can account for it? There's more. The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. And they didn't have to be that way, right? So they, they happened to be set at that moment but alter any one value and the universe could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the the nuclear strong force and the electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest fraction, by even one part in a hundred million million, then no stars could have ever formed at all. Feel free to gulp. Multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions and the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It would be, listen to this, it would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads 10 quintillion times in a row. Really. Uh, Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who uh, coined the term Big Bang, said that his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. I can imagine why. Why? Uh, he later wrote that, quote, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. I right, that's not even getting at the matter of biological complexity, which we'll spend some time looking at next week. So it's not surprising that it's the Judeo-Christian worldview that provided us with modern science. Think about this. The, The scientific method didn't arise from pagan polytheistic religions that held that ultimate reality was just one big cycle of chaos. And it didn't come from atheists. It came from Christians like Isaac Newton, who viewed nature to be ordered and designed they saw science as a natural outworking of a Christian desire to know God and his creation. Today, secular scientists have cut off the legs, but they continue to stand on the stool. The physicist Paul Davies writes, even the most atheistic scientists accept as an act of faith the existence of a law-like order in nature that is at least in part comprehensible to us. So science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological world view. And this conviction brings us to developing a Christian view of science. Christianity holds that God has made himself known by means of two books. right? There's the Bible and nature, or uh, what's sometimes described as general revelation in the world, And special revelation in scripture. And you see both of these books described in Psalm 19. Which is a hymn that celebrates the revelation of God. He says, David, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so nature itself is filled with words. The sky is described as shouting truth. The celestial bodies proclaim the work of the Lord. They reveal knowledge, knowledge about God and His majesty. Just pay attention and you'll hear the speech. Right, all of creation, from the amazing pictures taken by the Hubble telescope to this uh, blue-tongued weird uh, giraffe-horse-zebra combo I saw in National Geographic, they're all telling us God exists and He's worthy of the devotion of our lives. John Calvin says that we cannot open our eyes without being compelled to see God. But then David transitions in verse 7. And he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so the climax of this psalm is not about creation, but about the written word of God. It is perfect. Sure, right, pure, true. It's sufficient to tell us everything we need to know about life and godliness, and it's true in everything it affirms. And so for believers, special revelation is given priority. It's what helps us to clarify and interpret what we see in nature. But since both nature and the Bible contain the revelation of God, Christians should not take an antagonistic posture toward science, right? Science at its best is telling us something true about the world that God has made. And all truth is God's truth, no matter what the source is. And and so you don't need to be a Christian to say something that's true. You know, most of us uh, don't check to make sure that the car that we're driving was engineered by a Christian, or refuse to receive medical treatment from a doctor who's not a believer. People who are made in God's image are able to discover true and helpful things about nature. So you don't need to be a Christian to study science or to deliver accurate scientific findings. But you do need to be a Christian to recognize the significance of it. And to conduct science in a way that's consistent with all of God's revelation. Because the problem is... Uh, We learn from Romans 1, unbelievers take general revelation and then they suppress it. And so that requires some discernment on our part as we think through these things. Now, given that God has shown Himself in two books, what do we do when Scripture and science collide? What do we do when scientific theories don't line up with what we're convinced the Bible teaches? For example, there's Darwinian evolution which presents to us a very different picture of the origins of life from what we seem to encounter in Genesis. And yet evolution is the icon of contemporary science. Richard Dawkins, writing back in 1989, said, It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. All right, which one do you want to sign up for? Uh, Well, despite Dawkins' attempts to bully us, I'm going to discuss some reasons to doubt Darwinism next week and and reasons that have only gotten worse in in the past 20 plus years since he wrote that. Uh, And we'll see that Dawkins is actually hiding behind the ambiguous word evolution, which is why he's able to make such a strong statement. But we'll put evolution aside until next time. What about something less contested, like the age of the earth? All right, there, there's a strong scientific consensus that the universe that we're living in is ancient. The earth is generally dated to be about 4.5 billion years old. And the known universe is currently dated to 13.8 billion years old. And this is drawn from various lines of evidence, including the size of the universe in comparison to the speed of light. So if we're able to see stars from billions of light years Distance. All right, so it takes that much time for the light to travel to us. That's conveying the age of those uh, of the starlight, at least. Uh, Geological evidence from layered rock formations, continental drift that creates mid-oceanic mountain ranges. All right, you might not be aware. In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there's a mountain range on the on the surface of of the globe. All right, so that's created, it's said, by continental drift that has pushed together plate tectonics over a long period of time. Uh, The fossil record, tree rings and coral reefs and various types of radiometric dating. And and these things are said to be in tension with the Bible's presentation of a young earth. What are we to make of this? Uh, Well, obviously... Scripture itself doesn't explicitly assign a particular age to the earth or universe. Uh, But it does provide us with things like genealogies that take us all the way back to Adam. And so by generational counting and adding up the years, we can estimate roughly how long ago Adam lived and died. And the numbers we arrive at are relatively small in comparison in the thousands rather than the millions. And if Adam was created shortly after the earth was formed, indeed on the 6th day of the same creation week, then that would imply a young earth as well. So what do we do here? Well, if we see both the natural world and the Bible as products of revelation from God, then we know that there won't be a real contradiction between true scientific conclusions and correct interpretations of scripture. And so there are a few ways to resolve the tension here. Maybe we're misreading science. And that's one route that people holding to a young earth take. Those who interpret scripture as indicating a young earth and teaching creation in 24-hour days would point out a few things in response to the evidence for an old earth, right? They, they would. Some would see the geological and fossil formations as resulting not from gradual processes over long periods of time, Uh, but from a sudden catastrophic event like a global flood. And the book of Genesis happens to provide us with such an event. Some would question the reliability of certain radiometric dating methods or the assumptions behind them that the decay rate is constant over time. They would also question the assumption of uniformity with things like the speed of light. You know, how do we know that the present is exactly like the past. And so they, they would distinguish between things that we can directly observe now and our ability to draw conclusions about what uh, occurred in the early stages of the world. So that, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that maybe we're misreading Scripture. And there are uh, different versions of old earth creationism that claim this. They say that Scripture actually doesn't intend to teach. A young earth. That, that's something that isn't required by the text. And so uh, they think that the Bible permits following science uh, when it comes to the age of the earth. Now, we can agree or disagree with that interpretation of, of Scripture, and we'll look at it in a, in a moment. I, I do want us to recognize that there's nothing wrong with doing that in principle. Uh, it's not wrong to take a closer look at how we read the Bible because of what we've discovered in nature. That there probably aren't very many people arguing for geocentrism here this morning. But at one time, people were convinced that scripture uh, taught that. Um, And that's something that the situation of Galileo does does teach us. What's interesting is that it's not just the findings of modern science that have led to different understanding of Genesis 1 and 2. Individuals in church history as far back as Augustine held to other perspectives on the days of creation than a 24-hour or young-earth view, and here's some things that they would argue from the text. They would point out that Genesis 1:1 describes the creation of the universe uh, without specifying any particular length of time between that event and then day one of uh, of the creation week, where the narrative then zooms in to the formation of the earth. And so they would say that the question of the age of the earth is actually distinct from the question of the age of the universe where Genesis is considered. They would tend to view the days of creation as either representing long periods of time or as a a framework that's used by the author to present uh, God's acts of creation without intending to specify a definite chronology. Uh, They would point out that in Genesis itself, the word day doesn't always refer to 24 hours, such as Genesis 2:4, which talks about in, in summary, the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, but referring back to all six days of creation. Uh, they would identify other features of the text, such as the fact that on day three God says, "Let the earth bring forth vegetation and fruit trees." And then we're told that the earth, brought these things about. And the ancient reader of Genesis would use his day-to-day experience of the development of plants and trees and the, the length of time that that process uh, takes uh, to recognize uh, what's being talked about here. And then they would note that all the activity in Genesis 2, the making of Adam, the in Adam's naming of all the a- animals in, in the garden or maybe beyond, uh, and the forming of Eve, that those things don't seem to fit into day six, if that's a 24-hour period of time. You know, Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It maybe conveys a period of waiting longer than a few hours. Maybe he was just really eager, I don't know. Uh, And so, for those reasons, they would see Scripture presenting creation as taking longer than an ordinary human week and therefore would not pose a problem uh, for following the evidence for an old earth. And so one way to resolve the tension is to make sure we've read the text carefully enough. Uh, The final option available is to recognize and not necessarily disagree with some of the conclusions that science draws about the size of the universe or the rate of geological formation, but question whether that has any bearing on looking at a world that the Bible tells us is a special creation by God out of nothing. Right, much of science operates with what's called methodological naturalism. In other words, for the purpose of our methods, we'll assume that naturalism is the case. We'll just assume that nature is operating by blind processes and that miracles don't need to be taken into consideration. But if you're looking at a world that was created by God in the past by Divine miracle, there's only so much that you'll be able to detect with your naturalistic methods, right? Uh, Take a few of Jesus' miracles, for example. Jesus turned water into wine and multiplied fish, uh, but grab some of that wine and that fish and take it into a laboratory, and my guess is that it would have the same chemical and biological properties as wine and fish that occur by ordinary processes. Or take the virgin birth. If you did a medical analysis on Jesus, he would probably be indistinguishable from someone who was conceived by procreation. But God bypassed the ordinary process and gave Jesus a supernatural origin, even if that couldn't be detected at the level of the empirical evidence. But but now if you expand that to the whole universe, and you have a God who not only has made everything but nothing, but also intervenes, in his creation with miracles, then that would affect our ability to detect what happened if from the start we're only looking for naturalistic explanations. Science can tell us how natural natural processes would operate over time under normal conditions. It can't be used to rule out what would happen if you introduced a supernatural agent into the picture. And we'll come back to this at the end. Well, let me conclude with some Biblical parameters for interpreting Genesis 1 and 2. My goal isn't to settle this for us by any means. And I'm not necessarily trying to direct you toward a particular position. I, I just want you to be aware of some of the options that have been taken by believers in this category. I'd invite you to do more study. If you've not done a lot of reading in this, a good place to start would be the article out there by Vern Poitras, uh, Christian Interpretations of Genesis Genesis 1. Uh, the book that's mentioned in the back of your notes, 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution, would provide some additional help. Uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that the issue of the age of the earth is significant. Um, but it's not the doctrine of the atonement or the trinity. We, we do our best to understand scripture and hold fast to the authority of the Bible. Uh, but we want to hold our individual interpretations on some of these things a little bit more Uh, Loosely, And and, and there are godly and faithful men on both sides of this issue. And you might be surprised if I started listing the names. That being said, I I do think that the text of Scripture controls us in important ways. There are some views that should not be an option for Bible-believing Christians. And and here are some parameters that we could identify. Uh, The first is that Genesis is not a science textbook, but it is recording events that really happened. Sometimes people... Label Genesis 1 and 2 as a myth or say it's just trying to give you religious truth and and not teaching you something about science or history. Uh, Well, it's true that the text isn't written with scientific precision but with ordinary human language, and and as we'll see in a moment, with with symbolism as well. And the primary goal of Genesis is not science, but teaching us about God's redemptive story in the world. But clearly it is seeking to tell us about the way things really are. This is most evident with its main character, God. God isn't a fictional character. And yet he is at the center of the narrative. Genesis is presenting God as the real creator of the universe that you and I live in. And the rest of history is is seen as unfolding from this. There's a seamless connection between Genesis 1 through 3 and the chapters that follow and on into the rest of the biblical storyline. All right, Vern Poitras in that article I mentioned writes this, we should also observe that Genesis 1 through 3 is integrated into a larger whole Namely, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, in turn, fits into the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And the Pentateuch, by God's plan, forms the first portion of the canon of Scripture that now includes everything that we have in the Bible today. Genesis, as a whole, is written about people such as Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, whom it presents as real people who lived and died and who went through specific experiences in time and space. References in later parts of the Old Testament and in the New Testament confirm that the Bible regards these people as real people rather than characters in fictional or semi-fictional stories. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are listed in Luke 3 among the ancestors of Christ. Genesis, of course, is selective in what it records, but it presents the events as events that really did happen. The fact that Genesis 1 through 3 is integrated into the larger book of Genesis confirms that the first chapters in Genesis are describing events in time and space, things that happened rather than things that are made up. And so Genesis is intending to tell us about what really happened. It's presenting to us a real God making a real world that's in historical continuity with you and me. Now at the same time, uh, we need to recognize that Genesis 1 through 2 is highly stylized and it contains literary symbolism throughout. Right, the, the name Adam, Adam means from the ground and it's also the Hebrew word for humanity. And the name Eve means mother of all the living. So they're, they're real individuals but they also serve as representative for all of humanity before God. It says that God breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life. I don't think we should interpret God as literally bending down and conducting CPR on Adam. Uh, There's the picture of God working during daylight hours and punching the clock each night while resting at the end of the work week. Uh, God's presented as walking in the garden and calling out, Where are you? to the man and the woman as they hide. These are obviously figurative descriptions. And so the author C. John uh, Collins, the biblical s- scholar, describes the genre of the early chapters of Genesis as exalted prose narrative. It's not myth, because it's talking about the same world that you and I live in, and it wouldn't necessarily be accurate to call it poetry, uh, because it's not written in Hebrew poetic forms, uh, but it's a historical narrative that is adorned by exalted Prose. And, th- and this leads us to the second parameter, which is recognizing that Adam and Eve are real historical individuals from whom the human race descends. Biblical inerrancy commits us to this. Not just Genesis, but the rest of the Bible teaches that Adam and Eve were real people and the head of the human race. Paul says in Acts 17:26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Uh, Jesus himself held that Adam and Eve really existed, and Paul teaches in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 that all humanity fell in the disobedience of Adam. So any view that departs from this shouldn't be an option for taking someone trying to take biblical authority seriously. So that would be the major parameters. Uh, beyond this, I think we can observe Uh, that Genesis 1 does present the days of creation as real work days taking place in succession. I think that presents a problem uh, for views that would attempt to ignore the chronology of the days or insert large uh, gaps of time in between the days. Uh, To read the passage is to encounter day 1 and then day 2 and so on. Uh, At the same time, I don't think that this means that the 24-hour day view or young earth creationism is the only option for accommodating this. Uh, One example would be uh, C. John Collins and Vern Poitras and others have argued for what's called the analogical day view. That our work week is an analogy uh, for God's work week. They say that the proponents of the 24-hour view are correct. To point out that features of the text, such as the description of evening and morning, and the numbering of the days, uh, they're they're presenting they're indicating that the frame of reference is the workweek pattern, uh, but the work days are God's work days rather than man's, and so there, there's an analogical rather than identical relationship between God's creativity and man's, and this is obviously true in several ways, right? Man exerts effort. God doesn't. Man is limited by time and energy. God isn't. Man's work week continues and is repeated. God's is complete. And so we don't need to insist that a work day for God must be identical to a work day for man. Uh, again, there, there's indication in the text uh, for this. Poitras writes God's rest from the work of creation is everlasting. By inference, the day of God's rest closely linked with his act of rest is everlasting. It is not 24 hours long. Man's day of rest commanded in Exodus 20 can still be 24 hours because it is analogical to God's rest. The analogy rather than the identity in length is the salient factor. If analogy belongs to the seventh day, it belongs also to the other six days. So again, the salient factor is not the length of time as measured by a clock of some kind, but rather the kind of activities that take place during the day. And so that actually gets us past a little bit the debate on the meaning of the term day. In in Genesis 1, the significance isn't just the meaning of the term, but what that word is referring to, what it's intending to reference. And, And Collins writes, a big difference between the day age and analogical day view is what they do for the meaning of the word day. The day age view appeals to the sense period of undefined length while the analogical day's view takes the word in its ordinary meaning but applies that meaning analogically. And here's what he says. If you're not getting what's going on here, this is really helpful. This is just what we do with other analogical terms like eyes of the Lord. We don't need a new entry in the dictionary for eye. We use the ordinary meaning and we apply it by analogy God, and so I don't think the 24-hour day view or young earth view is demanded by the text of Genesis, but my position is a little complicated because I also don't think that abandoning a young earth view is demanded by the science, um, and I don't argue this necessarily from flood geology or questioning the dating methods, although there seem to be competent scientists who do so. I just don't find this view to be, in, in principle, falsifiable, and that's a benefit of it, actually. If Genesis teaches that God made the world out of nothing in the relatively recent past, why would we expect that world to be any different from the world we observe today? Right? Mountain ranges uh, can be formed by gradual processes or they can be made uh, instantly by God in a moment. But the fact that mountains exist doesn't automatically tell you which way it happened. Anymore that somebody who would show up late to the feeding of the five thousand would be able to rule out a miracle happening even though ordinary observation would lead him to conclude that these fish had lived a nice and full life before they were caught and cooked. Uh, Sometimes this is called the mature creation view or the appearance of age. Uh, I think that's a little misleading. Uh, For one reason, I don't think that creation has an intrinsic appearance of age. I think that's something that we assign on the basis of our experience but those labels are also unhelpful because to me this just seems like the, the natural ex- a consequence of holding to creation out of nothing. Right? No matter what you believe, if you believe in creation, at the moment of creation, something now exists that wasn't produced by previous natural causes. It looks like you could rewind the tape back further and get there, but you can't. And so in in that sense, creation, it's like a movie that begins with a story already in progress. It's just a question of at what point in the story God decides to press the play button and how long the creative process uh, took to set the stage. So I don't think we can know that with certainty, but I'm comfortable knowing that a number of options are available to us. All right, hopefully that's on the whole helpful, even if it started to get a little esoteric uh, toward the end. Uh, We'll spend some time next week discussing... Uh, The question of what Christians should think about evolution and what problems there might be for the standard uh, model of Darwinism. Thanks so much for your attendance and attention. Y'all have a good week.